And now as we come to your word, again, Lord, we thank you for it. And we can only come as beggars, asking to be fed, asking, give us our daily bread. Oh Lord, we know that you are faithful, that you are good, that you are sovereign, and that there is no God like you. There is nothing in all of heaven and earth that compares to you. So we pray, O Lord, that You would reveal the truth that You would have us know from Your Word today. That You would confirm it in our hearts and that it would affect the way we live our lives. Give us comfort if we need comfort. Give us conviction if we need conviction. O Lord, You know. You know all things. You know what we need. So we pray, O Lord, that You would Feed us with your word. We also pray for our children who are here, both our children inside the womb and outside the womb, and we pray, O oh Lord, for their salvation. We pray that the gospel seeds that get planted there, that you would water them and that you would cause them to spring up in your appointed time for Christ's glory. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible, please turn to Psalm 40. Uh, you may know we study a psalm on the first Sunday of every month. Uh, every other Sunday, we're studying the book of John. That way, we kind of have a foot in each one of the Testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And when we finish John someday, the next book I'll be preaching is First John, and then we'll find a study in the New Testament to do. Uh, not First John, First uh, Samuel. And then we'll find a book in the New uh, Testament to be studying on the first Sunday of every month as well. But today we're going to be in Psalm 40, and you might be thinking, wait a minute, we just said 38 last week, or last month, what happened to Psalm 39? And the answer is, Psalm 39 is going to be my New Year's sermon. So Psalm 39 will be next month. Today we will be in Psalm 40, which is yet another psalm about being rescued from trials, uh, written by David. Um, we've seen so many psalms about these things and the practical application of these psalms, how therapeutic they are, how much they, they help us uh, to understand not only that we will go through trials, but that God is with us even in the midst of our trials. And what should we do in the midst of them? That's what this one is about. It's about being rescued from a trial, but then finding yourself in another one. Now, it would be great if when God rescues us from a trial that we are just done with trials, that we can just ride off into the sunset and live happily ever after, but uh, that is not ever the case, unfortunately. Um, more certainly, uh, we will find more trials as we, uh, as we go down the road, as we continue in this journey. Uh, it's more realistic to understand that there's a pattern that we go from one trial to the next. It's so important that we understand that. That life can be filled with trials. Because there's not one person in the Bible who had an easy life. Who had an easy journey. And that actually includes Jesus. Jesus certainly didn't have an easy life. No, it's been said that while God has only one son who was without sin, he has no sons 
who are without sorrows. In fact, we're just getting ready to uh, continue our study in John, in John chapter 16, which we'll start next week. And John chapter 16 starts with some very important words for us to take note of. It's kind of a warning of sorts. Jesus says to the disciples in chapter 16, verse 1 of John, "...these things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling." There's a very clear implication there. Well, what, what things had he, had he been speaking to them about before that point? Well, being hated by the world, facing opposition, and yet the hope, and yet the, the promise that as they abide in Him, He will cause fruit to be born in their lives, fruit that pleases the Father and glorifies Christ. That nobody was going to be able to say that Jesus didn't warn His people about hard times in life. And He tells them and us that He told us about what difficulties we would face so that we would be kept from stumbling. The implication there is that when difficulties come, there's a temptation for people to fall away from the faith. And some do. But now listen to how Jesus concludes chapter 16. He says, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. So despite these clear warnings of difficult circumstances which God's people will face and will endure, many people nevertheless respond to trials and troubles that they face by doubting their faith, and sometimes even by walking away from the faith. Trials have a way of doing that to people. They have a way of shaking you to the point where our faith is really tested. And sometimes a person's faith proves in the midst of a trial to be very shallow. Sometimes it proves to be outright superficial. But the truth is that God has promised us a safe arrival at our destination, but He has not promised us a flight with no turbulence. Therefore, one of the things you need to know, Christian, as a child of God, is that there will be trials. There will be afflictions. There will be troubles. There will be times when your faith will be tested. And you'll need to know how to respond when that happens. You'll need to really believe that God sometimes leads us through the valley of the shadow of death, but that He only does so for our good. In order to avoid turning away from the Lord in such situations, in order to avoid stumbling, you'll need to know in those situations how to respond, how to draw near to the Lord, how to seek the Lord, how to wait on the Lord. And this is where so many of the Psalms have been so incredibly helpful for us. Keep in mind that they were all written as songs, uh, that that, that were sung. Jesus sang many of these uh, Psalms, no doubt. Uh, But these songs, uh, like all songs, songs have a way of sticking with us. It's been said that we should watch the theology uh, that we preach because when you guys leave, you're not repeating the things that I said, but you are singing the songs that we sang. Songs have a way of sticking with us, which is why in every culture around the world, there is an alphabet song. Uh, that's, why, uh, that's why the Psalms are so helpful. They were songs. 
And Psalm 40 was a song that teaches us how to draw near to God and to wait on Him for deliverance when life gets hard. So there are two main portions of this psalm. Uh, there's verses 1-10, to 10, which tell of a previous uh, encounter in which God faithfully delivered David from a trial. And then verses 11 to 17 indicate that David immediately found himself in the midst of yet another trial as soon as he was delivered from that previous trial. And he finds himself once again crying out to God to rescue him. And so it begins from the past and it moves into the present. So this is a psalm in which David remembers God's faithful deliverance from previous trials and afflictions. He remembers not only how God has worked to save him from previous difficulties, but how God has been faithful to always help His people in difficult circumstances. And so he calls upon God once again to rescue him from his current trial. We have to learn to do this. Because difficult times are ahead for everybody. Trials come and trials go. Trials test our faith, and they refine our faith. So so David begins this psalm by recalling God's faithfulness to deliver him through a previous trial. Let's look at verses 1-3 to of Psalm 40. For the choir director, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord, and He inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and He set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. Now, we don't know exactly what circumstances he's referring to here. We don't know uh, which trial he might be talking about. We have no clues to help us figure out what exactly he's talking about. But the truth of the matter is that God was faithful to deliver David from more trials than he could possibly count, which means there were certainly more trials that he endured than we read about in Scripture. This was just one of myriad trials that David went through. But David recalls that whatever this trial was, in the midst of it, he had cried out to the Lord. He had trusted that God would respond to the extent that he was able to then wait patiently for the Lord to do something in response to his plea. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord. The truth is, well, It would be easy to say I waited on the Lord. It's not so easy to say I waited patiently on the Lord. The words waited patiently in the original Hebrew would literally be translated waiting, I waited. So there's a repetition there, which means there's something important there. And I think the reason it's important is because waiting is so difficult. But it is important to wait on the Lord and to do so patiently. Why is it so important to underline this by by repeating this word wait? I think it's because it's just so contrary to the flesh to wait. And not only to wait, but to wait with patience and faith. It's so contrary to our flesh. Our, Our flesh just doesn't like to wait, especially in a culture like ours, Uh, where people get outraged if they have to wait five minutes for their fast food meal to be delivered to them. But 
When it comes to waiting on the Lord, what it means to wait is to trust. Ultimately, that's what it means. It means you trust. It means that you believe that God is faithful. And because God is faithful, He's not just going to leave you there. He's going to do something one way or the other. But you know that He's going to do it in His perfect timing. It's kind of an acknowledgement that our timing isn't perfect. In fact, our timing is going to be off almost every single time means that you are trusting in God. And so you just find yourself content to just wait and not try to make things worse by taking control of the situation or resolving the difficulties yourself until God intervenes and does something. So David recalls how God rescued him from a pit of destruction, from the miry clay or the, the muddy clay. Now there's a story in the book of Jeremiah in which Jeremiah is thrown into a cistern because he prophesied this. He said, this city will certainly be given into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon and he will capture it. Which sent people into an outrage because I don't know if they realized exactly what he was doing. He was just telling them what was going to happen. But the the king's officials heard this And they come to the king, King Zedekiah, saying, now let this man be put to death inasmuch as he is discouraging the men of war who are left in this city and all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man is not seeking the well-being of this people, but rather their harm. Actually, he was the right way, so he was telling them, you're in trouble if you don't handle this the right way, so act in accordance with what the Lord has said. But that's not the way they interpreted it. And so then we read in chapter 38, verse 6 of Jeremiah, Then they took Jeremiah and cast him into the cistern of Malkijah, the king's son, which was in the court of the guardhouse, and they let Jeremiah down with ropes. Now in the cistern there was no water, but only mud, and Jeremiah sank into the mud. That is a hopeless situation. It would have meant absolutely certain death for Jeremiah. Death by uh, starvation or death by drowning in mud. Either way, it would have been a slow, painful, very conscious death. But an Ethiopian named Ebed-Melech interceded on Jeremiah's behalf. He went to the king and said this. He said, My lord the king, these men have acted wickedly in all that they have done to Jeremiah the prophet, whom they have cast into the cistern, and he will die right where he is because of the famine, for there is no more bread in the city. So King Zedekiah then commanded Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian, saying, Take thirty men from here under your authority and bring up Jeremiah the prophet from the cistern before he dies. Thirty men. Now, I don't think it's that Jeremiah was this enormous guy who weighed so much. It was that this mud that he was stuck in prevented him from moving very easily. And so it was going to take a lot of people to get him out of that mud. Now, it's possible that David had some kind of situation that was like this in which he was literally stuck in mud. Uh, But whether it's a literal pit of mud or just a figurative, you know, uh, piece of language, a figure of speech describing a situation in which he was trapped and had no way of, of freeing himself, no way of helping himself, the point is that God delivered him. 
He realized that he could do nothing except cry out to God, and God delivered him. He prayed, he waited, and not only waited, but waited patiently, and God rescued him. In fact, God did five things that David tells us about here. First, he inclined toward David. What that means is he he turned toward David. He heard David's prayer. Third, he lifted David up out of the pit. Fourth, he set David's feet on a solid rock. And fifth, he put a new song in David's mouth. Through this psalm, this song being sung, many would see and fear the Lord who faithfully rescues His people. And thus they would fear the Lord, and they would be encouraged to trust in the Lord for themselves. All David did, though, was pray and wait patiently. Maybe that was all he could do. That's often not the case. It's often not the case that we can just pray and do nothing because we're just stuck. Usually we can do something. Usually we can make a bigger mess of things, which is almost always what happens. But maybe that was all David could do was just pray and wait. But either way, it was the right thing to do. To pray and to wait is to trust God with our prayers. Are you able to do that? Are you able to trust God with your prayers? Are you confident when you cry out to Him that He does hear you? Are you willing to not only pray and tell God about your troubles and to seek after His help, but then to wait on Him and not only wait on Him, but wait patiently? Wait faithfully. Wait trusting that God is faithful. Waiting in a way that says, I trust that whatever God is doing, He's doing it not only for His glory, but for my good. This is one of the ways that we trust God with our troubles. When we pray and wait. Trusting God with our prayers. Remembering and believing that He is always, always, always faithful to His Word, and faithful to His people. He never allows anything to happen to His people that A, He can't handle, no such thing, and B, makes them less like Jesus. Romans 8.28 says He's causing all things to work together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. That purpose in the next verse, being conformed to the image of Christ. He won't let anything happen to you that makes you less like Christ. Trust that. Believe that. Cling to that. And trust Him with your prayers, waiting patiently on Him. Our our waiting patiently on the Lord, trusting Him with our prayers, speaks volumes to the people around us. Especially if they know what our distress is. Especially if they know what troubles and trials we're going through. It therefore not only benefits us, and it not only glorifies God, but it also benefits those around us for us to pray, call out to God, and wait patiently. It's a blessing to those who notice. How blessed are those who will trust in the Lord because of the way David trusted in the Lord? They're blessed. That's what David answers for us in the next couple verses, verses 4 and 5. He continues writing, How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust and has not turned to the proud nor those who lapse into falsehood. 
Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders which you have done, and your thoughts toward us. There is none to compare with you. If I were to declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. David was a blessed man. A richly, richly blessed man. Not only because he had wealth, the world would say, oh, that's a blessing. Uh, Not because of his skill on the battlefield. Some people would say, "Well, well, that was a blessing. Nor because of any earthly thing or skill that he possessed. But simply because he had this immense trust in the Lord. That's a blessing. To be able to trust in the Lord the way that David did. Why did trusting in the Lord make David a blessed man? And similarly, why would those who trusted in the Lord because of David's uh, trusting in the Lord, his, his testimony, why would they also be blessed? David lays out three reasons here. First, because putting our trust in God prevents us from turning to the proud in our moments of need. It prevents us from turning to the proud in our moments of need. Prideful people aren't uh, very thoughtful people. Uh, they may be intelligent people or, or not, but the prideful person usually doesn't weigh all of his options before acting, and thus they do not usually pick the best course of action. Uh, he, he doesn't consider, the prideful person doesn't consider all the other possibilities, all the other perspectives, and thus often becomes inclined to act too quickly and thus foolishly. The proud are self-reliant. That's repetitive. That's that's kind of the defining characteristic of somebody who's proud, is they're self-reliant. The proud, therefore, do not trust in God. They trust in themselves, which is why the Scriptures instruct us to humble ourselves before the Lord. The the proud person trusts in themselves. And for that reason, it is foolish, it is folly to either trust or to follow the proud. Why would you trust in someone who is proud before you trust in God? If you understand the foolishness of it, you wouldn't want to do that. If you trust in the Lord the way that David did, you avoid this problem from the get-go. The second reason that a person is blessed for trusting in the Lord is because it prevents us from trusting someone who can lapse into falsehood. It prevents us from trusting somebody who can lapse into falsehood. And by the way, anybody ever uh, lapse into falsehood here? I'll be the first to raise my hand. That describes every human being on the planet, whether they're proud or they're humble, because we don't know everything. And so we sometimes make mistakes. Kids, mom and dad, sometimes make mistakes. And someday when you grow up and have kids, you'll make mistakes too. We all make mistakes. Whether we're humble or proud, we're all capable of making mistakes. But God isn't. God isn't capable of making mistakes. God is all-wise. God is all-powerful. He's all-knowing. How could an all-wise, all-powerful, all-knowing God make a mistake? He can't. He can't. He's He's unable to make mistakes. Therefore, how blessed it is to trust in God because He can't make mistakes. The third reason, verse 5, 
The third reason that we're reminded that the person who trusts in the Lord is a blessed person is because the Lord has been faithful to His people so many times and in so many ways, in so many different situations, in so many different contexts, that it would be absolutely impossible to count every single one of them. God is still, by the way, the same God who saved His people in the ages before. The God who saved Israel from Egypt. It's the same God who now saves His people from sin. He hasn't changed. He doesn't make mistakes and He doesn't change. And that assures us that He still, to this day, protects and provides for His people even now just like He did back then. It's the same God with the same attributes and the same love toward His people. This is how good and this is how gracious God has always been to those who trust Him. And He's the same today toward those who trust Him now. Now you need to know that in the middle of your trials and your troubles, when things go wrong in your life, you're going to be confronted with a temptation to trust in prideful people, maybe even yourself. Or to trust in flawed people, definitely yourself included. But if you want to experience the blessings that His people have experienced through the ages, the same kinds of blessings that you read about people in the Old Testament and the New Testament experiencing, you must trust Him for yourself. You must trust Him for yourself. You must learn to lean on Him, confident that He can bear the weight. Would I lean on this pulpit if I wasn't confident it would bear the weight? No, I would not. In the same way, you wouldn't trust in God if you don't think that He can bear the weight. But you need to trust in God, knowing that He can bear the weight of your trials. Until you trust God in this way, you won't know, you won't comprehend, you won't understand how good it is, what a rich blessing it is to trust in the Lord above everything and everyone else. As the psalm continues, David moves to issue a warning now to those who would claim or even those who would maybe desire to trust in the Lord the way that David does. He warns us that trusting in the Lord is not something that's just external. In fact, whatever happens outwardly starts inwardly. It's not just something that happens externally through rites and rituals and religious ceremonies. Rather, David wants us to know that even if you do all the right things externally, but you don't have a heart that is surrendered to the Lord, A, you're not trusting in the Lord. You're, you're trusting in yourself, in, in your ability to, to put on an outward act. And B, you won't know the blessings of trusting in the Lord the way that you would if you would only submit your heart entirely to Him in faith. So David continues by issuing a warning to his reader. That's a warning for us. We would be wise to pay attention. Verses 6-8, to David continues saying, "...sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required." Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Now you may recognize that portion of the psalm. 
that it's quoted in Hebrews chapter 10, where we read in verses 5 to 10, Therefore, when He, speaking of Christ, when He comes into the world, He says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of Me, to do Your will, O God. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law, then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. Now the the he that keeps being referred to in that passage is Jesus. And the fact that the author of Hebrews applied this portion of the psalm to Jesus has led a lot of people, a lot of very good uh, faithful teachers, to conclude that this psalm must therefore be messianic, that this psalm must be describing a situation that Jesus went through. Um, We need to consider that, but uh, I would say, no, maybe this part is about Jesus, but you certainly can't apply the whole psalm to Jesus, uh, given the fact that the psalmist will go on to confess his sin in verse 12. That alone should prevent us from concluding that this whole psalm is about Jesus, since obviously Jesus never had a sin to confess. So this portion of the psalm reminds us of a very important biblical principle that it's better to obey than to sacrifice. It's better to obey than to sacrifice. This applies to Jesus perfectly because He came to make the perfect sacrifice. But the point that the psalm perfect life in order to do that, in order to make the perfect sacrifice. But the point that the psalmist is making is that God is more pleased by His people walking in obedience to Him than He is by all the outward external things that we can do, all the rites and rituals that you can perform. Why is He more pleased with obedience than He is with sacrifices? Because sacrifices are external, but obedience comes from the heart. And God is always looking at the heart. He's looking at your motivation. He's looking at why you're doing certain things. Now those of us who have been around a little while, I didn't say we're old. I don't want to use that word. But we've been around maybe a little bit longer than some of you. We may remember a song by Keith Green called To Obey is Better Than Sacrifice. Every time I think Uh, To obey is better than sacrifice. I think of the lyrics, which are written really from God's perspective uh, towards somebody who is struggling to grasp this principle that obedience is better than sacrifice. And they seem to be just kind of going through the outward motions and God is calling them back to, uh, to examine their hearts and to walk in obedience to Him. The song goes, To obey is better than sacrifice. I don't need your money. I want your life. And I hear you say that I'm coming back soon, but you act like I'll never return. And he goes on, To obey is better than sacrifice. I want more than Sunday and Wednesday nights. Because if you can't come to me every day, then don't bother coming at all. To obey is better 
than sacrifice. The principle that obedience is better than sacrifice is found throughout the Old Testament as the Israelites loved to partake of all these feasts and all these uh, these festivals and rituals. They, they loved to party. They, they loved to do the outward stuff. Nevertheless, they had this tendency throughout the Old Testament to keep their hearts far from God. And so they were going through the outward motions, but they were not concerned at all about obedience. Inwardly, they were far from God. And so we read the prophet Samuel saying in 1 Samuel 15.22, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. We see this principle reiterated in Hosea 6.6 where God says, I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Knowing this principle to be true and trusting the Lord, David proclaimed to the Lord, I delight to do Your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. To have God's law within your heart means to be in right standing with God. It means to be acting in accordance, walking in accordance with what His Word instructs. It means to be walking in obedience to God. And this is central also to the New Covenant. God explained the New Covenant, which was to come to the prophet Jeremiah, saying this, he said, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. To trust in the Lord in a way that will make known to you the blessings that David knew requires obedience to the Lord. And obedience to the Lord flows from a heart in the desire to obey. If you struggle with that, if you struggle even with the desire to obey, pray. Ask. James says, you don't have because you don't ask. So ask. And if you don't feel it yet, keep asking. Keep asking, confident that God will be faithful to put His law within you and on your heart. Confident that God has the ability to give you the desire to be obedient. Obedience to God invites God's blessings. David continues, telling us of the personal effect that God's blessings had on his life in verses 9 and 10. He says, I have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. Behold, I will not restrain my lips. O Lord, You know, I have not hidden Your righteousness within my heart. I have spoken of Your faithfulness and Your salvation. I have not concealed Your loving kindness and Your truth from the great congregation. So while we're talking about the kind of obedience that flows from a heart that carries and and follows God's law, Jesus said something that was very interesting about the connection between the heart and the tongue. He said in Matthew 12.34, the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. He was specifically applying that in that situation to the Pharisees who were a brood of vipers who were incapable of Uh, of really saying anything good. And the reason they couldn't say anything good or true is because their hearts were filled with such evil. 
But as someone myself who once upon a time struggled greatly uh, for many years with speaking in a profane manner, this one verse, Matthew 12.34, explains exactly why cursing comes from a person's tongue. It's because cursing fills and pollutes his heart. The answer to that is not behavior modification. Been there and I tried that. No, the answer isn't soap in the mouth as if washing out the mouth does anything to the heart. No, the answer is cleaning out the heart. Who can clean the heart? I can't. You can't. But God can. That's something only the Lord can do. When our hearts are cleansed, when our hearts are made pure by God's Word working within us, our mouths will naturally be speaking of God's good and gracious blessings unto us. Have you had your heart cleansed by the power of God working within you through faith in Christ? Have your experiences taught you that yes, indeed, the Lord is so good and so gracious and so faithful Does your heart overflow with testimonies of God's blessings in your life and in the lives of others? Then you should speak about them. You should speak about them openly, freely, and naturally. David was moved with gratitude and thanksgiving as a result of the blessings that he had personally experienced in his life. He felt the duty and the obligation to share the good news. He did not want to hold back talking about the good news of God's salvation and His blessings unto His people when He spoke with others in the great assembly. He could not, by the way, not be silent about God's loving kindness. Did you catch that word, by the way? I have not concealed your loving kindness. If you remember, as we've seen so many times in the Psalms, this word is almost a theme in the Psalms. The Hebrew word is chesed. It's a specific type of love that's applied only to God's people through the covenant. It's covenantal love. It's a love that God has for his people. It's not a love that God has for those who don't know him, who don't fear him. It's a love that he has toward his own people. And David loved to talk about this covenant love. I pray that the same would be true of each of us as well. Now, I suppose that there are a lot of reasons, any number of reasons, that people become timid or people become shy about sharing their faith, but we must learn to trust, not ourselves based on what we say or how persuasive we might be, but we must learn to trust the Lord when we speak with someone whom we fear may not want to hear the gospel. When you're afraid of sharing the gospel with somebody because you're afraid you might mess it up, Who are you really trusting in there? You're trusting in yourself. Instead, just trust the Lord. The Lord is the one who cleans the heart. The Lord is the one who uses means to accomplish His ends. And the means that He has accomplished, or that He's ordained to accomplishing faith within a person is sharing the gospel, is preaching the gospel. We must remember, however, however, that even though a person troubles are always just around the corner, they never seem to stay away for long. And so at this point, David moves quickly from this past instance in which the Lord delivered him to now the present when he faces a trial once again. 
Let's look at verses 11 to 15. He says, O Lord, You will not withhold Your compassion from me. Your loving kindness and Your truth will continually preserve me. For evils beyond number have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I am not able to see. They are more numerous than the hairs of my head, and my heart has failed me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. Make haste, O Lord, to help me. Let those be ashamed and humiliated together who seek my life to destroy it. Let those be turned back and dishonored who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. So having spent the first part of the psalm recounting the previous faithfulness of God, do you see the confidence that David has in the, presence as he, uh, in the present as he enters into a new trial. He says two things of God's faithfulness in verse 11. He says first, You, O Lord, will not withhold your compassion from me. And then he says, Your loving kindness and your truth will continually preserve me. He doesn't say, Oh, please let them. He doesn't say they might preserve him. He says they will. He's confident that God will help him in the present because he's been thinking about the way that God has always been faithful to help his people, including David, in the past. And so he's got this confidence. He knew that these things were true and that the Lord was as much his only hope now in whatever trial he was entering into as he was before. He's, David is surrounded by evils beyond number and yet... Did you catch this? He, he realizes that of all the troubles that he's surrounded by, he realizes that at least part of the blame lies on him. He says, my iniquities, my iniquities have overtaken me. His enemies haven't overtaken him. They've just surrounded him. His iniquities, on the other hand, have overtaken him so that I am not able to see, he says. They are more numerous than the hairs on my head. That's another way of David saying, God, I have sinned against you in more ways than I'm capable of even beginning to count. It's a confession of sin. David is acknowledging his sin here. And what a blessing it is to even confess sin, knowing that God is faithful to cleanse us of our sin in exchange for our confession. John says this in 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. He says, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. David's troubles may have all been related to this sin that he's confessing in some way. Or or maybe they weren't. Either way, while he might not be able to immediately get rid of the troubles surrounding him, he does know how to get rid of the troubles that have overcome him. The iniquities that he has committed as a result of his pride or his sin nature or whatever. He knows how to get rid of the most pressing issue. And that is to confess his sin to the Lord. The more a Christian considers his own life, the more a Christian thinks about the difficulties and the trials and the afflictions that we face, 
The more you think about these things and examine these things in light of Scripture, the more you will realize that you are the primary cause of your own trials and troubles and afflictions. Because sin, your life, has all kinds of troubles for us. Nobody in my entire life has ever caused me as much grief as many troubles, as much heartache as I have caused myself in my own sin. And the same is true for every single one of us, whether we realize it yet or not. God was David's only hope. He was his only hope of salvation, just as surely as he is your only hope of salvation and just as surely as he is my only hope of salvation. David's enemies were many. And while David was a fierce warrior. People feared David. He was a great warrior who who could have taken matters into his own hands against his enemies. Instead, what does he do? He prays for God to do something. He prays that God would deal with them because he's not going to. David's not going to deal with them. So he prays that God would deal with his enemies. Of course, this was something that we see David doing over and over again in his life, but it's exemplified specifically when King Saul was trying to murder David, if you remember. He forced David to to run for his life. And at one point, David had a chance to avenge himself and to strike King Saul down as Saul sought a, uh, a private moment, if you will, in a cave where David was hiding. Instead, David simply remained in the shadows. He remained silent, having just cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He used that corner of Saul's robe to prove to Saul that he could have taken his life. After Saul went out of the cave and rejoined his men, David from a distance came out shouting and and showing the corner of Saul's robe, saying to them, Behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord had given you today into my hand in the cave. And some said to kill you, But my eye had pity on you, and I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. He's trusting that God would deal with Saul. He knows that his time as king is coming. He's already been anointed as the future king of Israel. But he's not going to take matters into his own hands. Instead, he's going to let God deal with it the way God will. David trusted the Lord to deal with his enemies in this situation in the same way. In a time when many are speaking about how many the church's enemies are and how they're rising up against the church, we'd be wise to follow David's example here. We aren't called to be culture warriors. We aren't called to be primarily activists. We're called to preach the gospel. We're instructed to love our enemies. We don't need a call to arms. We don't need to turn our plows into swords or guns. No, we need to pray for our enemies and to pray for them regularly and to trust that God is going to deal with them in His own way eventually, one way or another. Christian love is the weapon that God has armed us with. And He's provided a direct connection between us and Himself while we're here on the battlefield of this life, this world. That direct connection is called prayer. Use it. Speak to Him. Ask Him to deal with the people, your enemies who surround you. Those who hate God. 
have always and will always take a stand against God's people as well. They always have. They always will. In the world, you have tribulation, Jesus warned us. But take courage. I have overcome the world, he said. David knew this to be true even in his own time. He knew that life was filled with difficulties. He knew that life was filled with conflict. But he knew that for those who know the Lord, there is nevertheless every reason in the world to rejoice with gladness. Let's look at verses 16 and 17. He said, Let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let those who love your salvation say continually, The Lord be magnified. Since I am afflicted and needy, let the Lord be mindful of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. What a blessing, a rich blessing it is to be able to take refuge in the Lord in this way. To know that God is sovereign. And that while we're not exempt from trials and tribulation and afflictions, that whatever we endure, whatever we come across, it serves one purpose above all, and that is making us more like Jesus who himself endured many troubles in the world. If he endured troubles peacefully, patiently, are we better than him? Do we deserve better treatment than him? That's the question that he asked in John chapter 15. The answer is, of course not. We understand, as Jesus understood, as Jesus knew, we understand that God has ordained every affliction, every difficulty, every situation that we face only for our good, for driving us repeatedly to the Lord for help, for showing us the weakness of the flesh, and for conforming us to the likeness of Christ. Trials have a way of teaching us not to love the world. Trials have a way of of weaning us from the world. They cause us to take our eyes away from all the things in this world that glitter and look so good and so appealing to the flesh. They cause us, our trials have a way of causing us to instead lift our eyes from the dirty mire and muck of this world and to look forward to the certainty that one day our troubles will be no more when we enter into glory. Now, I don't know what pit you might be in today. Maybe you're not in a pit today, but the time will come when you will be. You will face trials. The Bible promises it. Jesus promised it with certainty. The time will come when you will find yourself needing to have the kind of faith, the kind of patience, the kind of trust that David had in God. The way out is to cry out to the Lord and then to wait. And not only to wait, but to wait patiently, believing that God is faithful. As you wait, set your mind on remembering the ways that God has delivered you in the past. Set your mind on the ways that God has delivered all of His people in the past. Set your mind on the stories of Scripture where God is continually faithful unto His people. And as you wait, walk in obedience to Him. If there's ever a time when you're tempted not to be obedient, it's when you're being afflicted and you just want it to be done with. 
No, as you wait, walk in obedience to Him, knowing that obedience is better than sacrifice. Knowing that obedience is what pleases Him. As you wait, remember that He has already dealt with your number one problem in life. And that is your sin. Your iniquities. If you have believed on the Lord Jesus, He has removed your sin as far as east is from the west. How far is east from the west? Forever. It's, it's, a, it's a figure of speech that has no distance. No, no distance that we can count or calculate. If you've believed in Jesus, that's how far He's taken your sin away from you. He's laid your sin upon Christ. He's laid Christ's perfect righteousness upon you. And as you wait, rejoice in these things. Sing and share with others what God has done, confident that God is still with you and for you, as He has always been with His people. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we confess to You that when trouble strikes, when affliction comes, our first instinct is not to trust in You. Our first instinct is to trust in ourselves. Our first instinct is to trust in other people. But, O Lord, by Your grace, we thank You that You teach us to turn to You to call to You, to wait on You. We pray, O Lord, that You would give us the same confidence that David had as he waited to You, waited for You. We thank You, O Lord, that Your Word instructs us in how to handle difficulties because we acknowledge the reality that difficulties will inevitably come. So we pray that You would be with us in the midst of those times that You would strengthen us in the midst of those times, that You would assure us that You are not only with us, but that You are for us, causing all things, every circumstance we face, to make us more like Jesus. All for His glory. We pray in His name. Amen.